Welcome. Hey, it's America This Week with Libby Rodney, and this week I'm joined by special guest Dami Rosano. Dami, how are you doing? Doing really well. Good morning. How are you? Good. Um, John is out today. He's enjoying a well-deserved vacation day. Um, we're all actually at the Harris Bowl ending going on vacation next week, so we won't have a show next week. But, um, you know, it's it's well-deserved. It's, it's mental health, uh, and it's very important. Um, but if you're new to our program, we're pollsters who take a special look at society and culture with a weekly pulse. And, you know, we want to tell everyone who's you know, maybe a first-time listener, a long-time listener. We welcome any polling ideas you might have, any ideas, any questions you might have. So just drop us a note on LinkedIn or Twitter. Um, and if you like our banner, please leave us a review. We really appreciate that. We are now in wave 122 of weekly tracking since the pandemic began. And Dami, for this week's update, we're going to dive into four mm -hmm. topics um, about freedom and fear and dreams and financial out maneuvers we're trying to make getting through the inflation. Um, but we're going to do a deep dive on Roe v. Wade and really look at the aftershock mm -hmm. the ruling is creating in America. Um, we're going to look at the American dream and focus on some attainability gaps because the dream is there, but it's not an equal opportunity for everyone to pursue it. We're going to look at mm -hmm. inflation and Dami's going to talk us through inflation um, and how Americans are aggressively prepping for the big R, you know, that recession. And then we're going to look at buy now, pay later and showcase how it's, you know, it's creating a new lifeline for folks. But with any financial, you know, credit tool, we have to proceed with a little bit of caution. We don't want to get over our heads. Um, but Dami, I'm so happy to have you on the show today. Um, <laughs> your Dami is a, just a fantastic research director at the Harris Poll, Insights Everything, um, just a fantastic person that I love working with. And I couldn't think of a better person to kind of walk through honestly, the heaviness of the Roe v. Wade conversation mm -hmm. um, and where we are today. But we, we wanted to do is, you know, everyone's out there talking about the insights around this. Uh, we wanted to give a, a perspective of how it how it now feels and what it looks like to be an American today in the state mm -hmm. of Roe v. Wade and the overturn. And overall, the key takeaway is we now live in America where a majority agrees that women have less rights than men, um, which is a really hard thing to say. And but look, we're going to get through this and we're going to we're going to walk you through some of the data. So one thing all Americans can agree on is that freedoms are being infringed on overall. So women have it worse. Nearly seven in 10 Americans agree that women's rights have been infringed on by the U.S. government in the past year. But also people of color say they're people of, or people in America believe people of color's rights have been infringed on at 62 percent. Um, all Americans say LBGTQ individuals at 55 percent, their rights have been infringed on. And it even kind of drips down to the religious population at 52 percent and even half of Americans believe that gun holders' rights have been infringed on. So we're kind of living in this stewing pot where everyone's rights are being infringed on or we feel mm -hmm. this, this unease about our freedoms taken away from us. And now, of course, in reality, some of our rights are being taken away. So over 6 in 10 Americans agree women have less rights than men. 64% of Americans agree that the ruling uh, overturn of Roe v. Wade means that women will have fewer rights than men, including um, three-fourths of 
BIPOC women um, and LGBTQ individuals believe that to be the case. So we're now living in America where we have less rights. Um, it also has created a fog of pessimism across the U.S., where more than half of Americans say they feel pessimistic about the future of the U.S. after the decision. That includes 66% of low-income women, 61% of Gen Zers, and 59% of all women. So we're there's a pessimism that's residing and in deep into kind of our souls. And then also the overturning has shifted our perception of America as a leader. So six in 10 Americans, all of them, agree that since Roe v. Wade was overturned, the U.S. should no longer be considered a global re- leader in human rights. That seems wow. to be linked because women have less rights than men. Everyone kind of agrees right. with that. So Dami, let's just stop and process that. Right. Like, freedom is core to our values as American. Optimism is core to our outlook. What are the ramifications of all of this? <laughs> and I'm laughing not to laugh, but I, I don't right. know what else is a rational response to this right now. I, I, I completely agree. I mean, I think one of the things that often occurs as a result of such controversial news of of changes that deal with topics like this is actually one of the ways that it, you know, inspires action. And I think that's probably one of the um, impacts that it's going to have on American culture. Um, Mm. I remember doing some research around American values and this concept of um, American culture and identity during and after the most recent presidential election. And one of the things we actually looked at were like the top 10 attributes that people thought described the United States and how that changed. And actually a lot of the attributes stayed the same. The top ones were that America's rebellious, we're very opinionated, we're very (laughs) outspoken, which is very par for the course. But one thing we noticed is that before and after the election, we saw the attribute of individualist or individualism become replaced with resilience. And I feel like that's something that's really going on here too because people want ways to be involved and when you have news that that feels like something is being taken away from you regardless of which you know side of the aisle you're on it inspires you to act and we're seeing a lot more people not just taking to the streets to protest but they're trying to figure out are there organizations that they can be a part of um i personally i'm you know this is anecdotal but i'm actually part of an organization that helps support um state and local level campaigns um who are you know supporting people who really, really care about their communities, but they don't have the money to spend on a ton of digital teams. We're actually seeing within our own organization, a lot more people get involved in in supporting a lot of those state and local level candidates Mm. because they're saying, you know, I don't like the direction the country is headed and state authorities and local authorities have such a say in how I live my life today. So let me get involved that way. So I think we're starting to see that resilience. I don't necessarily think that, you know, our values have changed and I don't know that that will necessarily change our ranking in the world. I think it's just time for Americans to rise to the occasion. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're really seeing right now. Well, that's, that's a really positive and optimistic outlook that I love because I love optimistic outlooks in general. Um, (laughs) But I, I I really like that. I mean, I think, um, you know, uh, the critique of the millennial generation was that it was like, you know, you just had to sign an email petition. Uh, But now because our our loss is so much higher or the rights are so much mm-hmm. higher that we have the potential to lose, you, like to your point, we might see a lot more grassroots mobilization and people actually making change, getting involved in politics and, and kind of um, really reworking the system from the inside out, it sounds like what you're saying. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And I mean, I mean, even though there is, you know, that optimistic outlook, I, I don't think that that, you know, in any way ignores the reality that a lot of people are facing. I do think that, you know, there's a lot of anger. Yeah. There's a lot of fear. There are a lot of people who are still, you know, unhappy with the way that, you know, the overturning has taken place. And so I, I do think that um, there's a need for acknowledging that anger and balancing it with that optimism, too. Oh, absolutely. So one thing that we saw in our research is that this kind of puts the country on track for more fear and anger, unfortunately. So two mm. in five Americans say they feel angry about the decision, including more people from the LGBTQ population, non-parents and women. Over a quarter at 28% feel scared, including 46% of the LGBTQIA population, 40% of Gen Zers, and 34% of women of color. And this really mm -hmm. has scared people because nearly six in 10 of all Americans fear that women could be punished by law for reproductive decisions. So that really creates a lot of, you know, mm -hmm. instability. Um, and right. then when you look at the positive side, only a quarter of Americans are happy with this decision. So there seems to be like a net negative. Um, you know, that includes 40% right. of GOP members and 27% of men. But all overall, it seems a lot more fear than and 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 being scared. Um, mm -hmm. And then it also it points to a class issue. Two thirds of all Americans agree that women of color and those from lower social economic households will be disproportionately impacted by this decision. People overall in America see this as essential health care right. Uh, um, right at nearly seven in 10 say abortion is essential health care right. And then it creates a little bit of institutional uncertainty um, or a lot of it. Actually, the ruling has also have that nearly six in 10 at 58 percent of Americans questioning the Supreme Court and their decision making abilities and 83% of Americans say they expect there to be protests in the street and 40% say they will per participate, including more people from the LGBTQ community, millennials, um, mm -hmm. and BIPOC women of color. And so again, kind of, you know, what you were talking about, it's like, we're, we're kind of boiling to this point of more fear, but also it's, you know, if you look at the essential existential crisis that we keep layering on top of each other. It's like, right. we just got through COVID. We're getting through inflation. There might be a recession. Mm -hmm. It's like, how much more can Americans handle in this? You know, what do you think about that? I think it's, and I'm probably sounding super like patriotic and optimistic right now, but I think when you live in a, in a democracy that is as, as complex and as, as multicultural as ours, that democracy is going to take a lot of testing. Mm. And I think there kind of does need to be that constant sort of accountability check for a country. And I think this is one of those moments right now where we're going through an accountability check. And and I think a lot of that is also generationally motivated, too. You have a lot of young people who have grown up in a world where Roe v. Wade has always been a thing. And now they're faced with a world in which that has essentially been taken away from many of them. And so I think we're trying to we're, we're starting to see the country kind of get back to a point of, OK, what are our values moving forward? Um, what institutions can we trust? What institutions need reform moving mm -hmm. forward? 
forward. Um, and I think that also gets back to my point then about activism that we're going to see a lot of, especially younger people campaigning for changes um, in the way that things work, especially because younger people have been so affected by these back-to-back crises, recessions, mm-hmm. um, you know, economic shocks, a, a global pandemic that, you know, is technically still not completely over. Um, and so I, I think that's where we're headed right now as a nation. You know, that is so interesting. I love your term about generational check. And a lot of times when we talk to clients about Gen Z and they talk about, oh, well, isn't this just a life stage, a rebellious life stage around activism? And I think what mm-hmm. you're saying is that actually this is going to be a long-term value core, motivational core of who, especially Gen Z is, and and probably young millennials and all millennials maybe, but because they've Mm -hmm. lived through these crises, right? And so Mm -hmm. it's not going to be this thing that they turn 25 and all of a sudden they go and shift their values a totally different direction. It's like, hey, they've they've lived through these really... um, epic losses in their lives. And so they're going to go and be a part of that change that they want to see in the world. Would you, you think that's exactly right around? Yeah, I do. And I, I think to your point too, of, you know, kind of how they turn 25 and they mellow out. I mean, you mellow out if the world around you is pretty stable, but you know, as we've seen millennials get older, as Gen Z starts to age up too, like the world isn't really becoming that much more stable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and instead of being able to sort of heal from whatever trauma you went through, whether it was a recession or a war, an economic shock or, or a pandemic, it's just kind of, again, those layered crises. And when you have that, you're constantly on edge. You're constantly mm-hmm. paying attention. You're constantly looking for the change, trying to figure out what's wrong. And so the more crises there are, the more you're going to see younger people calling for change because there's there's no time to heal. And the only way in some ways that you will be able to heal is by creating that change. So I, I definitely agree with that interpretation. I love that. Um, speaking of you know generational changes and shifts, then our next topic is the American dream. And here we wanted mm. to understand is the dream still alive, right? And what we notice is right. there's a lot of attainability gaps here. So overall, six in 10 Americans at 64% view the American dream as being attainable today. Now that's one percentage increase from 2021, but mm-hmm. over a third at 36% of Americans say the American dream is unattainable. And of those, they say it's because America is too politically divided So again, maybe a place where it's not peaceful, you know, in this idea of what Mm -hmm. a dream is. They say the Mm -hmm. original idea of the American dream is no longer applicable in today's world and that the American dream is just dead altogether. So there's a little bit of (laughs) pessimism coming in. Um, But those who say the American dream is attainable, we can see the attainability gaps in the following ways. We see generational, income, gender, and city versus rural. And I'll go through those in a second. So I'd love to hear more. Only 56% of Gen Z think the dream is attainable. Now compare that to 70% of millennials. So it's a big 14% Hmm. gap. Income gap. This is, you know, you could probably guess this. Uh, Only 59% of low income population believe this is attainable compared to 71% of the higher income population. Gender gap. This was surprising to me. Only 59% of women think that dream is attainable compared to 70% of men who says it's attainable. So a big 11% gap there. And then city versus rural doesn't matter as much. Um, only 61% of rural say it's uh, unattainable versus 69% of uh, urban population. So if you live in the mm-hmm. city, you, you're likely to think it's a little bit more attainable. But Dami, what's going on here? You know, Gen Z, <laughs> you know, women, uh, low income that, you know, why, like, 
how do we kind of think about this? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think there are several reasons for this. And I mean, the reasons I'm probably going to list are pretty broad sweeping because, you know, you're dealing with so many different cross sections of the population here. But um, some of the ones that jump out to me the most are when we're looking at women, I think one thing we have to keep in mind is that gender parity and salary um, is still an issue. And, and in terms of just being able to get the same jobs as men in many ways is still an issue. You know, similar to low income residents, it's a little bit harder to feel that you're going to be able to achieve the American dream if you're making less. Mm-hmm. Then on top of that, women really took a lot of the brunt of the of the pain and the issues that came with the pandemic. Many still haven't returned to the workforce since they had to leave or lost their jobs. And so on top of a, you know, a comparatively lagging salary, they now have to deal with the additional negative financial impacts of the pandemic. And so I think it would make sense in that regard to, you know, maybe be a little bit more pessimistic about the American dream. And then, of course, it, you know, it doesn't necessarily surprise me that younger people are are more pessimistic, too. Um, many young people, as we've already discussed, have lived through several once in a lifetime crises. And so they're really feeling that paradigm shift that, you know, maybe that dream isn't necessarily as as attainable anymore. Top of that, you know, when we're looking at younger people, student loan debt is still a primary concern. You know, it's not that it's not that millennials don't still have to worry about student loan debt, but, you know, they are a little bit further along in life. The youngest millennial is about 26 and the oldest are about 41. Many of them have started to pay down a lot of the money that they've owed. And, you know, in general, they have more money than they did at the same age where Gen Z is now. And so while economically they're still dealing with um, a lot of the struggles that older generations haven't had to really contend with, um, some millennials are seeing that, it you know, it's still possible to have some version of the American dream, which which I think probably brings up a much broader, even, you know, potentially more existential question of, you know, our generations, you know, defining the American dream differently. For example, you know, is home ownership, does that still have the same meaning to a lot of people? Wondering if you have any takes on that. Yeah, well, it's interesting because we looked into that with the data. And so a majority of Americans agree that um, at 86%, owning a home is part of the dream. Like it's quintessential to the dream. But nearly four in 10 at 37% feel as though this home ownership dream is unattainable. And again, we see the same gaps we've seen with the American dream, gender gaps, generational gaps, low in- like income gaps. So if you're a woman, if you're from Gen Z or you're low income, you're much less likely to think home ownership is attainable for you. Um, we also notice that two in five Americans are looking for a home um, in the next 12 months. What's interesting about that is it's 45% are new homeowners. So they're, they've never owned a home before. Um, and populations that are looking are 58% of black Americans, 52% of Hispanic Americans, 66% of millennials, again, maybe because they're getting their dream, right? 54% of Gen Z's. So they're not as nearly as um, high as millennials are yet. But right. a majority of them think they're gonna. It's gonna be difficult. So 84% say it's gonna be difficult to buy a home in the next year, and half say it's because home prices are overpriced or home prices are overpriced in their area, and a third say it's because the market's too competitive. So you know, it's be, it's tough. Like you live in a in an urban city, or you live in some new second city that everyone's moving to, like Austin or Denver, and all of a sudden you're priced out, right? So it's it's just challenging. And and maybe millennials, right. like you said, had a little bit more income, but Gen Z like don't have it yet. So how do we, how do we think about redefining the American dream or what's going to happen? I think, especially with regards to home ownership, I think one thing that's really interesting is, is especially the influence of the pandemic, I think, and how it's 
in some ways potentially changed our relationship with home and the con the concept of home. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of people, especially if you lived in, in bigger cities, um, were renting apartments at the beginning of the pandemic and, and suddenly kind of were faced with fluctuating rent prices, had to leave where they were living before, had to, especially if you were a millennial at some point, I think it was, what is it, like 52% of millennials at some point were living at home with their parents during mm -hmm. the pandemic, um, myself included in that. Um, and so <laughs> I think, you know, home brings about this sense of control. And it, it, it brings about this concept of stability and, and in some cases freedom to be able to do what you want in your own place and and have, you know, self-expression in a way that you can't necessarily always in a place that's not your own. Mm. Um, and I think that that sense of control, especially in a time that's been so trying, is probably one of the reasons that home ownership has still remained such a part of the American dream, because I think fundamentally the American dream is this concept of, you know, I'm in control of my own life. I can control my own destiny and, and home ownership is definitely an extension of that. I do think there will probably be some generational changes and in, in terms of maybe how we size our homes or what amenities <laughs> we have in our homes versus others. But I do still think that home ownership in some ways kind of reflects that control and that sense of being able to determine my self-expression and destiny um, I, that the American dream has been so well known for. Yeah, I love that. And also it's like um, a sense of grounding in reaction yeah. to all of the chaos and the shifting and have like cultures moving fast, technologies moving fast, mm -hmm. pandemics are moving fast, but your home to your point is like, you're grounded in it. You own a piece of land, you own a property. Right. There is an extreme sense of grounding. I, I, I think that's fantastic. Do you want to take us into the next story about what Americans are doing to get rid of, you know, to, to outmaneuver inflation? <laughs> exactly. Yes, yes. So, you know, Americans have been you know, aggressively preparing for this big R, this recession. And so in our latest survey with Personal Capital and Empower, um, which was also featured in Fortune CFO newsletter, we found at the Harris Poll that American consumers are really concerned about their financial stability in the face of rising inflation. So some stats to throw at you here. 85% of Americans are concerned about rising inflation and 74% um, about a potential recession impacting their financial stability. Um, and then on top of that, over half of Americans about 56% are saying that their standard of living, they can already feel it declining. And so beyond a general cutting back of daily expenses, which affects about three quarters of Americans, um, more than half, 56%, are paying off debt more aggressively than they would have otherwise. Another 58% are putting away more money into their short-term savings and their retirement savings. And just over a third, about 37%, are also exploring alternative housing options. So again, you know, potentially this idea of the definition of homeowner changing. Um, another 69% think that their income isn't keeping up with inflation. Um, but surprisingly, less than half, only about 41% are asking for a raise at work. So just taking a pause here, you know, Libby, what do you think is um, going on with regards to the job market? What do you think this is going to do to the job market? What do you think employers especially need to be thinking about here? Yeah, it's so interesting because um, this is something we actively watch and we're waiting. And I think the, the narrative is, are employees going to get lose control where they've had that's been a, a talent uh, market, right? And so will mm -hmm. they lose control if there's a recession and will uh, employers be back in the driver's seat? And the thing is, you right. don't know until you know. Um, but what we do understand is it's very expensive every time you have to get a new employee and the recruiting costs and all yes. of that and the time that you lose. And meanwhile, 
employers, they just want employees just quit a job if they, um, we saw in blue in a, a study we did with Bloomberg that found that 90% of employees had quit a job when they didn't receive a requested raise and 64% mm -hmm. would be likely to quit their job if they were offered a role from a different company that had a raise. So, you know, the thing is like, just to be a little proactive about raises right now and offsetting costs will probably do a lot in the long term to offset some of these inflationary concerns and these concerns right. about a recession. Because to your point about grounding with the home, the instability, the agility, all mm -hmm. of that, it's like you just want your employer base to be someone at this point right now in this moment who's taking care of you a little bit, right? Exactly. Yeah. And then I can definitely see that. Oh, yeah. And then for our last really quick story, um, we're going to do a little bit about buy now, pay later. And, you know, it's a new lifeline for folks. But because it's a financial tool, we have to be proceed with caution, of course. This is a study that we did with Sunbit um, that goes into the ethical side of why consumers want buy now, pay later and what is it for. So when you look at the market overall, nearly three and four Americans um, are at least somewhat familiar with buy now, pay later. But more importantly, mm -hmm. they want to have the options available. And nearly seven in 10 said they were interested in buy now, pay later for necessary services like car fix, dental work, eye care. And it, mm. it particularly is servicing the population who feel stressed about the current economic situation. They want 74% right. of them want those options versus people who feel more fortunate are they only only 53% of them want that. Overall, majority of Americans still want buy now, pay later options. But when it's available for a necessity, um, people who use it report feeling very positive about it. They feel 63% feel relief, 47% feel happy, 39% um, feel excited, which is <laughs> excited is the one that I'm like, ooh, I don't know. Um, but also 76% yeah. have used this payment option more than once with an average of five transactions completed. So, you know, there's a caveat here with any financial credit vehicle, you know, buy now, right. pay later is great in terms of giving people a bit of a lifeline, but you don't want people to confuse a lifeline with their wants and needs, right? And and get above their heads financially. And right. Dami, I'm so curious what you think about this because there's been this rapid uptick of buy now, pay later during the pandemic. And, and now that we're heading into a, an infl like inflation and recessionary period, it seems like it's gonna be used more. Scott Galloway wrote a great article about this <laughs> in the New York Magazine where he said that it seduced a generation with a great pitch and that it's innovation at the checkout, which has increased basket sizes and purchase frequency. But ultimately this could, you know, the musical chairs are gonna stop and we're gonna be held with a lot of debt. So like, how do we think about a tool like buy now, pay later in this time that we're in, this, you know, inflationary time, this potential recessionary time? Like, what should we be thinking mm -hmm. about? Yeah, yeah, I actually think it's funny too that Scott Galloway actually wrote a piece on this because I ended up working at um, one of the startups that he had started a few years back called L2, um, worked there during the tail the tail end of his tenure there. And I remember at the time I was working specifically with retail companies and we were advising them on this new fancy buy now, pay later <laughs> um, apps that were, you know, taking over lower end retail and that luxury retail should potentially be adopting it too. Um, so it's kind of interesting <laughs> to see that come full circle. But I think some of the reasons we've seen it become so adopted, especially among younger consumers too, um, is because, you know, it's, it's very quick credit with a very seamless interface. Those companies have done a really good job of just making it very easy for you to hop in and get the item that you need as quickly as possible. It's really appealing to that 
sense of instant gratification of I really, really want something. And, and buy now, pay later allows you to still get that thing without necessarily having to give all of your money away right away. And I think in some ways, kind of to your point about the number of people who feel excited when they <laughs> use it is it's kind of a dopamine hit to still be able to afford something that might have been a challenge for you to afford before. Um, and I think you bring up an interesting point about how buy now, pay later was almost supposed to be a lifeline. Um, and that it wasn't supposed to be something that you did regularly. It was supposed to kind of be there as a backup. And I think in many ways, the lifeline has become the norm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think if you extend this broader into kind of just what's going on in economic and monetary policy, the economy is really going through a quite a big uh, reset right now, a correction, if you will. And, and so with that, you know, lifelines that we've been used to, low interest rates that we've been used to, to a, for a long time, all of that's starting to change. And so that means that, you know, interest rates are going up. You're going to have to pay more for the debt that you've had. Um, you are looking for additional sources of credit, but maybe you should be a little bit more, you know, financially strict with yourself, a little bit more financially responsible. Maybe you shouldn't be buying those things that are bigger purchases, even if you might be able to pay for them in installments, because we've gotten so used to kind of having the lifeline, the low interest rates, the additional sources of credit, the stimulus checks kind of be our our, our fallback plan. And that fallback plan has to stop being kind of the plan and become a fallback plan again. And so I think that's what we're seeing here in terms of the, the issues that people are dealing with right now. So that made me think of something so interesting. I think you taking it out from buy now, pay later is a lifeline to thinking about it as the entire financial system as a lifeline is so mm -hmm. smart. And because credit was cheap and interest rates were low. But also, I don't know if you mm -hmm. caught that piece in Atlantic about millennial subsidies and the idea that like yes. Uber and Lyft and we're, there are all these subsidies there and there's that. And then if you add on supply chain issues, which are going to say that all our products and goods and services are going to be more expensive because mm -hmm. we actually have to pay the real price of quality goods in the future. That yes. is like a... I mean, that could be an enormous tipping wave in the way in which we value things, we afford things, mm -hmm. we look at things, we the way we buy things and bring them in and out of our homes. Um, and ultimately, it hits like not just a sustainability product point of view, but really a sustainable mindset point of view of like, Okay, Absolutely. what can we afford? Why and what are the values behind this? So I, I think that's fascinating. We should dig into that um, in some of our next shows. Dami, you have been such a fantastic <laughs> co-host. I'm so glad you were able to join me this morning. Um, John's going to be jealous that he wasn't a part of this conversation. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, I just wanted to say to uh, anyone listening, we won't be up live next week. Uh, Harris Poll is closed for a week. Um, because we created this thing called We Boundaries, which means that all staff has an entire week off to rest and relax. And um, we jumped on that trend. So, uh, you know, please hit us up if you have any questions or feedback or any polling ideas. And Dami, I hope you have a fantastic end of your week and long deserved break coming up. Oh, yeah. I mean, thank you so much for having me. I I'm I'm I I always love coming to talk with you and coming to talk with John when he's here too. So thanks, you know, so much for another great Friday morning conversation. I hope you have a wonderful vacation too. Thank you.